Well, thanks everybody for coming out on a sunny and windy day. Perfect day to talk about renewable energy. We fueled, of course, both by wind and sun. So I think we set that up uh, better than you could have imagined. Uh, my name is Rick Rosso. I run the India program here at CSIS. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with CSIS events, that also means that I, uh, sharing duties somewhat with Sarah, are your designated safety officers. So should something go wrong today, uh, we'll all meet and uh, uh, walk calmly uh, outside the door, uh, turn a left and head over to the National Geographic Museum. But we're not expecting anything to, uh, to go wrong today and hopefully a lot of things to go right. So five years ago, uh, Prime Minister Modi elected to office takes over, and I think at least for a lot of Washington, he was a bit of an enigma. We studied him a bit as state leader of Gujarat. We knew certain things. We knew that he was an early adopter of renewable power in the state of Gujarat. Um, we knew that uh, as a state leader coming to office, he was talking about this notion of competitive federalism and cooperative federalism. So how can you work with state governments more effectively to meet India's national development objectives? These two things came together not long into his tenure when he announced this, uh, this major commitment of 175 gigawatts of renewable power by the year 2022. Again, uh, his own uh, early adopter and belief in renewable energy, uh, paired with his knowledge that uh, state governments, of course, are going to be critical to meeting these kind of objectives. So uh, as a former chief minister and a believer in renewable energy, uh, really gave him the uh, kind of gravitas to, to lead to this uh, early commitment. Now, uh, it's not the only power reform that has been initiated since Modi came in, of course. You've got the, uh, the Uday Power bailout program. You've got uh, oil and gas developments. You've got coal reforms. Uh, Sobgaya trying to deliver electric power uh, more widely across India. So a number of reforms that are happening simultaneously. Uh, it's great to have um, uh, my, my good friend, uh, Secretary Kumar here. Uh, of course, he, uh, having been served in the uh, state government in Kerala, uh, understands, uh, too, extremely well on the role that states play and how they meet up with, uh, with national objectives. So having somebody with his energy, dynamism, and knowledge taking over this important role as secretary in the Ministry of New and Renewable Energy, you couldn't have asked for a better advocate for this role at the time that India needed us most to meet this major commitment. So I'd like to uh, welcome Secretary Kumar up to take the podium, and uh, please help you uh, join me in welcoming him to this, uh, to back to CSIS. Thanks, Greg. Yep, cheers. Okay, my time starts now. Uh, thanks, Rick. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Uh, I've been given a time limit of 15 minutes uh, to conclude what I will say. So that's why I kept uh, the watch right next to me. Uh, all right, uh, for India, Climate change, uh, fight against climate change, uh, and adoption of renewable power is a matter of faith and commitment. COP21, we undertook to reduce the carbon intensity of our GDP by 33 to 35 percent by 2030, considering 2005 levels. We also undertook to establish RE capacity of 40% by 2030, that is through the non-fossil fuels. <clears throat> 2015, we declared the ambitious goal of setting up uh, 175 gigawatt of renewable energy capacity in the country, 
upscaling our target of 20 gigawatt. So from 20 gigawatt, we are going to establish 175 gigawatt. It was very ambitious. And today, as I speak, uh, we have established 76 gigawatt, uh, 23 gigawatt under various stages of implementation, uh, another 27 gigawatt under various stages of tendering. So that makes it 125, 50 gigawatt more to go by March 2020 to bid. When you talk about 76 gigawatt, it constitutes 22% of the capacity established today. If I add 45% of the large hydro, then it makes to 33% of the capacity as of today. If we go to 2020, 175, the R capacity through small hydro, solar, wind, biomass, plus another 50 uh, through large hydro, total capacity of around 525 gigawatt, again, we would be there at around 33% of the capacity. So we are confident and comfortable that by 2030, we would be achieving the target capacity of 40%, more than 40%. In fact, we would be crossing 50% uh, through the non-fossil fuels. <clears throat> we are not stopping at uh, 2022, 175 gigawatt. By 2030, we would have a requirement of 850 gigawatt, of which 350 going to come from solar and 150 gigawatt through wind. That means a trajectory of establishing 30 gigawatt of solar every year and 10 gigawatt of wind every year. So this is how we are going to go. Today, we have a manufacturing uh, a solar uh, uh, photovoltaic cell capacity of around uh, 3 gigawatt and 10 gigawatt of modules. But then we have to move ahead from here. And when we had to move ahead here, uh, we would require a manufacturing capacity of 30 gigawatt in the solar cells. And we are now adopting the policies uh, which would uh, facilitate manufacturing of PV cells in India. We have brought out a tender which is manufacturing link tender. So we are giving a sure market of 3 gigawatt provided the developer sits in uh, manufacturing of 1.5 gigawatt here in the country. So we are facilitating manufacturing of PV cells. When we're talking about make in India, we're not talking about only PV cells. When you talk about the wind sector, 80% of the wind equipment today is manufactured in India. And our endeavor is to enhance this percentage to 90, 95% uh, within next few years by 2022. Storage is key for success of RE sector and so is, the, uh, so is for the electric vehicles. And we anticipate that by 2025, uh, the storage uh, prices are going to come down drastically and it's going to make a huge difference to the RE sector. We are now concentrating on manufacturing and storage also. And that is through by creating demand 
and also trying to bring in the phase manufacturing program uh, for the storage, whether they're the battery cells or the battery packages. And that would be facilitated by both tariff and non-tariff barriers. So one, 175 gigawatt of demand by 2022, 500 gigawatt of RE demand by 2030, facilitating manufacturing in PV cells and modules, facilitating manufacturing and storage. We used to buy power uh, through the feed-in tariff regime, and uh, it used to be uh, around seven, eight cents per unit. But then, the getting capacity is not the idea. Getting capacity at affordable rate is the underlining thing. If I'm, I'm, I'm willing to give you a higher price, and if I'm going to buy power, if I suppose to today to try to, when the, when the price is ruling for solar and wind at around three, three and a half cent per unit, and if I'm willing to give it five uh, cent per unit, then I can establish uh, the capacity much earlier, maybe by 2021 or maybe by 2020. But the issue is not the speed at which you're going to install capacity. The issue is that you won't want to install capacity at affordable rates. So what India is trying to do is we are trying to provide energy access to the have-nots at affordable rates at the rates at which the discounts can buy. To integrate renewable energy into the main grid, we are establishing around 12,000 circuit kilometers of green corridors. We have identified areas which are rich in solar energy. We have identified areas which are rich in wind energy. And then we are planning out to evacuate power from these areas for integrating into the mainstream. If you see India, there are seven, eight states which are rich in wind power. And if you see solar, not the insulation, equal everywhere. There are solar rich areas and there are not so rich areas. So solar power and wind power is not equally distributed across the world, is not equally distributed across the country. But then the benefit of this power has to go to every person in the country per se. For the purpose, what we have done is we have allowed interstate transmission and losses free for all the states. If a state, Orissa wants to buy power, RE power, they can generate in Rajasthan, and they can have that power at the rate at which it is produced in Rajasthan without paying any transmission charge. So free ISTS charges is enabling instrument for distributing our RE power across the country. Various states in India had taken, uh, taken various paths for meeting their energy demands. 
they have certain acids, there are certain thermal acids, there are certain hydroacids. But now if they have to move to Aripar, then who pays the cost of the standard acids? So we have to use the standard assets along with the RE assets in a very, very judicial and rational manner. Not all states require RE power. They are meeting their demand through the, through the thermal power per se, as such today. But then, as I said earlier, for India, it's a matter of commitment and faith, adoption of RE power. So what the country has done is that we have made renewable energy purchase obligation. So every stage, every state has to buy a percentage of their share of the electric, electricity consumed through RE component. So today, it is around 17%. So if your requirement is X, then 70% of the X has to come from RE power. And this keeps on increasing by the year. So RPO is an instrument for ensuring that all the state across the country adopt renewable energy. And to facilitate that, as I said earlier, we have made interstate transmission free across the country. In India, power is a concurrent subject. Both state government and the central government, they can legislate. Both states and federal government, they can have their own policies. The states have their own state electricity regulatory commissions, which regulate purchase of powers, which regulate supply of power. At the central level, we have got a central electricity regulatory commission. So both are quite independent. But at the same time, when federal government passes a law, that has to be adopted by the state government. Both if RE power adoption has to be successful, both state and the center have to equally have to be an equal partner in that. Because the central government does not own land. Central government does not own resources. The land resources or the water resources, they are owned by the state governments. So we have to make them partner if this has to be success. If a state is not following the RPO obligations, renewable purchase obligation, then there are certain penalties to that. But then some of the state governments do not comply with those penalties because SCRCs, the State Electricity Regulatory Commissions, are regulated by the states per se. But then we have constant dialogue with the state governments and then we persuade the state governments that they should align their vision with the vision of the federal government. And they should also align themselves with the commitment of the national government 
and they should adopt the Ari power with the, uh, in line with the trajectory which has been given by the federal government. And I'm happy to share that most of the state governments are now complying with the trajectory which is given by the federal government in adoption of renewable energy. We have certain challenges. We have uh, challenges regarding uh, transmission. And uh, again, the transmission cost is socialized across the states. But then, when it comes to the national commitment, everybody is willing to partner and then partner in the transmission cost as such. So we have the targets fixed. We want manufacturing to be done. We have the demand. And then we have the states. States having not so good solar or wind power, and some states having good solar and wind power, interstate transmission free, RPO obligation for them to adopt power, and then they becoming the partner. Now, when we talk about the RE power offtake or purchase of RE power, both state governments and federal government can, they, they, can, 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 can do it on their own. But then, because the federal institutions has far better credibility, most of the developers sell their power to the federal institutions than the state institutions. But not all state institutions like this. Some of the states, their economy is robust. And then some of those developers also, like, like the state government of Gujarat, and the developers prefer uh, Gujarat government uh, as uh, at par with the, with, the, with the federal institution like Solar Energy Corporation of India. And uh, if a bid has been put by the state government and the, and the federal government, if the credit, uh, if, the, if, the, if the credit security is equal, that par, then they get the equal rate. But in case uh, they do not have a similar kind of uh, credit insurance, then the, 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 the rates which you, you get from the state is much lower than what you get from the federal government. So therefore, most of the states rely on the federal institutions to buy power. As I said earlier, that earlier we used to have feed-in regime, feed-in tariff, and feed-in tariff used to be costlier. So to bring the power affordable, we started undertaking the competitive bidding. And this competitive bidding started in February 2017. Earlier, uh, before February 2017, uh, the rate of per unit used to be around six cents. But after we introduced uh, feed-in tariff, oh, sorry, uh, the bidding regime, the, the, the rates came down to around uh, three cents per unit for both wind and solar. And now auctions, we have also started bringing the variability. Early we used to buy only solar power, standalone solar power. We used to buy standalone wind power. 
Then we considering the CUF, we started now buying the hybrid power. So solar and wind hybrid. Subsequently, to create demand for storage, now we started buying solar and storage hybrid power. And now we are moving towards solar, wind, storage, round-the-clock power. And this can be any kind of storage. And the latest in the auctions is that we are buying RE power along with the transmission. Our tender for the latest auction of generation club with transmission is already out. We propose to buy 7,500 megawatt power from Leh and Kargil along with transmission up to state of Punjab or Haryana. And we want the developers to quote a price for that. So we are not only buying power, we're buying transmission also. And we are facilitating investment in RE sector. Earlier what we have said, you bought by solar power, wind power, and transmission separately. Similarly, we are also, we have also, we have floated expression of interest for establishing the offshore wind project of the coast of Gujarat, where it will be one gigawatt of generation clubbed with transmission up to the show. And we are hopeful that uh, generation club with transmission would be fairly affordable for us because one, we will be getting investment from private sector, which will be at fairly uh, low rate. Number two, there will be transparency. Number three, there will be competition among various bidders to give the lowest cost to us. <clears throat> In order to have the, to uh, go along with the commitment of providing uh, universal energy access at affordable rates to not only the have-nots in India, but the people who do not, who live without electricity, 1.2 billion people who live without electricity across the globe. India had mooted this initiative called International Solar Alliance. And I, I'm happy to inform you that today we have 73 uh, countries who have signed ISA framework agreement and 41 countries who have ratified ISA framework agreement. <clears throat> the first assembly of ISA was held uh, in October last year and there India mooted a proposal that the membership of ISA should not be restricted between the tropics. Originally, the idea was the ISA shall be limited only to the 121 countries which lie fully or partially between the two tropics. But then, the benefit of solar energy, the solar power, should not be restricted. It should go worldwide. And that's how India mooted this amendment. And this amendment was accepted by the first assembly of ISA. And now it is becoming a global initiative. And the benefit of this global initiative shall be passing on to every citizen of the world.
our Prime Minister has given, uh, let me see, yes, just five more minutes, three more minutes. Our Prime Minister gave an idea. One world, one sun, one grid. Sun, the sun is everywhere around the globe 24 hours. And if there's a difference of 15 degree in longitude, it can save you one hour of storage. So one sun, one world, one sun, one grid. This can assist in saving the cost on storage and also on doing the peak shaving in the regions which follow subsequently. Like Oman can peak shave uh, uh, energy requirement of India. And India can peak shave uh, power requirement of, uh, of, of Thailand, and, and so and so forth. So one world, one sun, one grid is, is the principle now we are working on. Number one, to reduce the cost of storage. Number two, to make the sun power available to all the members of the world, uh, all members of the world, without increasing, enhancing the cost. And lastly, we are not only talking about the grid solutions. We are talking also about off-grid solutions. Uh, we are committed to de-dieselization of farm sector. We are going to supply 2.75 million pumps to our farmers. We are also facilitating creation of uh, solar farming, or so doing for solar farming uh, on uh, barren land uh, of uh, the capacity of 500 kilowatt to 200 megawatt uh, tail end solar farms, which will be connected to 11 kV to 33 kV stations. We are also committed to uh, solar cooking. In fact, we have introduced solar cooking in two of the villages uh, in India where uh, it is not the thermal cooking per se, but it is PV solar uh, connected with the induction cooking. And through clean cooking, what we want to be able to send is strong signal for the health of women. We want to reduce the drudgery of women. And these cooking systems are working, going to work for 25 years. So people don't have to go and hunt for the firewood. It will save the health of women and it will save the pollution. And then we are also utilizing the solar thermal and helping the states in meeting their cooling needs, in meeting their drying needs, in meeting their uh, large-scale uh, cooking needs, and uh, in fact, if I can share uh, one example for the, for, for the, and also uh, for the chilling of, of, of the milk. So we are, we are trying to uh, pass on the benefits of the solar energy, the RE energy through the grid connected, off-grid connected, and uh, through, uh, uh, through, through, the, uh, through the energy means. So lastly, to share uh, one example of solar drying, uh, in the hilly region of uh, Jammu and Kashmir. If you dry apricots and apples in the open sun, they can have the fungal attacks. It takes far more time to dry. But if you use 
the solar thermal uh, equipment, then the drying is faster. It is hygienic and the producer gets a better price. So friends, lastly I would say that our commitment remains for saving the environment. Our commitment remains for fighting against the climate change. Our commitment remains for adoption of renewable energy. Our commitment remains for providing universal energy access. Our commitment remains to provide universal energy access, not only the people in India, but all the people of the globe at affordable rates. We are willing to cooperate with all the stakeholders and, and uh, be successful in this mission to provide happiness to every citizen of the globe. Thank you very much. Okay, Secretary Kumar, can you hear this okay? Okay, so the first challenge we're gonna hand you is uh, the fact that our microphones aren't working, the ones pinned to us. So you get an accessory just like mine. So, so I can get rid of this. You can get rid of that, yes. Um, well, thank you very much. Uh, again, I'm Sarah Ladislaw, Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy Program here at CSIS. It is just such a pleasure to have you back here. I just wanted to uh, add my thanks and my welcome to, to Rick's at the top of the conversation. I, you know, we could have given you 30 to 45 minutes because I think you have so much detail to unpack. Um, it's always a real inspiration to me. I come at this from a different perspective than Rick does. You know, Rick is a, a, a specialist in India. I look at energy around the world, right? And I can't help but think, you know, just back to 10 years ago, the conversation we were having about India's aspirations in terms of, you know, how we were going to meet the needs of a developing economy like India and what some of the goals are and the targets are that you've come out in the interim and the kind of change that we've seen over a very, very short period of time is really inspirational. And it's important for all of us um, as we sort of look out into the future of energy trends to look and see and learn about what's going on in India and realize that it is in fact the future of the energy system. Uh, and so I always learn a lot from what's going on uh, in, in your work. Um, what I'd like to do in our conversation before we open it up, because I know we have lots of informed people in the audience who would like to ask some questions, um, is maybe cover a couple different things. One, um, I'm really impressed with the importance of your vision, because it's not just a vision for India, it's a vision for the role that India is going to play in the global economy. Um, two, I'd like to talk about the similarities that I see between what's happening here in the United States and what's happening in India. I think we have some very similar challenges mm -hmm. in some ways. And then through really just to help, um, because it's such a complex patchwork of things that's going on, maybe help answer some questions that I think maybe people here might have about understanding, um, particularly the role of, as you said, the equal partnership between the center state and the states in India. First, you know, on your vision, one of the things that you started off with uh, is the importance of your commitment to the Paris targets. And in a lot of my work, there's a lot of concern that the global commitment to Paris has somehow waned, not necessarily because of the political commitment of different countries, but because the realization that the target is so hard to achieve. Over the period of time that you've made this commitment, do you think that you've become more or less optimistic about your ability to meet those targets? And how do you think about the, the next time you go back to the Paris Climate 
uh, or, or the next UNFCCC conversation, what you're able to sort of talk about what you've achieved. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Uh, at the time uh, when we talked about this 75 gigawatt of target, uh, there were a lot of doubt uh, in minds of people that whether we'd be able to achieve it or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have been a little fortunate uh, because uh, the technology has been advancing, the efficiency of solar cells have been increasing, the prices have been coming down. Mm -hmm. So uh, high ambition and uh, high optimism uh, coupled with the good luck, I think, uh, luck has been on our side, uh, we would be able to achieve 175 gigawatt. In fact, not only will we achieve 175 gigawatt, we would be exceeding the target. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said, that when you're talking about 175 gigawatt, this does not include large hydro, which is considered a renewable power mm -hmm. uh, today. Mm -hmm. And uh, once we include uh, 45 gigawatt, which we have already established, plus uh, 76 gigawatt uh, through the other sources, mm -hmm. uh, we are already at 33%. And uh, by 2030, uh, we are sure that we would be uh, having uh, our electric capacity uh, through the non-fossil fuel sources, not of 40%, but uh, more than 50%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what do you say, because you mentioned making the transition from scaling quickly to scaling affordably. And in a lot of places around the world, the idea that solar costs were coming down so rapidly, but now, you know, how much more cost decline can we expect? We've got lots of concern over, you know, um, trade restrictions against cheap Chinese solar panels. This is something that we've been talking about here in the U.S. Some, is, does, mean, does scaling affordably mean doing it slower? Uh, right, I'm just talking about uh, our own experience that uh, we could have gone a, a rapid pace uh, for establishing our power had we been willing uh, to pay a higher price. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we have uh, earlier the feed-in regime uh, uh, tariff and then uh, uh, tariff regime, feed-in tariff regime, and then subsequently we moved on to bidding. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we moved on to bidding, it took uh, us some time uh, to establish uh, this uh, bidding regime per se, and then ensure that uh, all the bids come transparently. And then we get the right uh, kind of uh, uh, price, which is affordable to discounts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And today, if I say that, in again, introduce feed-in tariff regime, and I say, okay, I'm willing to buy power, uh, at the rate of uh, five cents or six cents, uh, most of the developers would be willing to come and uh, set up uh, their generation capacity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what I have to do is I have to draw a balance between affordability of power, mm -hmm. number two, uh, the kind of transmission capacity I have, mm -hmm. and uh, the third, the demand which I have to, which I have today, and which I'm going to create. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I have to balance everything as I move forward and. Uh, integrating RE into the main uh, power set. Mm -hmm. And integrating renewables into an electric power system is one of the key themes of the International Energy Agency's World Energy Outlook. Fatih Barol will be here this week to sure. talk about this. And so it's a, it's a challenge that every single country is facing, which is how do you do that? I think one of the challenges that we face here in the United States that's quite similar is that sometimes for utilities, 
integrating renewables has a has a, a, a loss of value proposition, right? Sure. And so how much of that have you experienced and what have been some of the strategies at the center and at the state level that you've used to try and overcome that? Uh, we have been very conscious of the fact that uh, the renewable energy we produce uh, is uh, properly integrated into uh, into the main system. We do forecasting and scheduling. Uh, we also have uh, renewable energy management centers. Uh, we are also building around uh, 20,000 uh, circuit kilometers of uh, green corridors. Mm -hmm. uh, we have got ambitious program of uh, enhancing, going into phase two of uh, uh, setting up uh, another 10,000 uh, circuit kilometers of uh, green corridors across the states. And uh, then uh, that will be fed to the phase three. But then, uh, what we first are locating the potential areas of solar power and wind power. Mm -hmm. What is the generation capacity? Mm -hmm. Suppose from X place I can have 40 gigawatt. How do I evacuate that power yeah. and put it in the main grid? So what we are trying to do is we are trying to establish uh, renewable energy parks. Mm -hmm. We are calculating uh, the resource that can be generated from there. Mm -hmm. And then we are planning the evacuation mm -hmm. so that the generation and evacuation takes place simultaneously. Mm -hmm. I cannot have generation today and transmission tomorrow. Right. Right. So they have to be, if I have to have the optimal use of resources, then both should come together. Mm -hmm. So we are doing meticulous planning for creation of generation and also transmission together. And what about, you You had mentioned when people are uh, developing projects or buying projects, they're very willing to do it from the center, you know, uh, but not not always necessarily from the state level. I mean, is there, there were some sort of press reports and, and industry reports about uh, renegotiations of contracts or, or delays in those sorts of things happening at the state level. Is that still happening, or do you think that was just sort of a, a growing pain uh, scenario? Okay, let me take the second part first. Uh, as for the uh, power purchase agreements and the contractual obligations are concerned, they are sacrosanct. We are very clear in our mind, mm -hmm. uh, both the federal government and the state governments. The contractual agreements, once entered into, can't be altered. Mm -hmm. So we would respect the contracts, mm -hmm. one. Number two, when I was talking about the rates, it depends on the credit rating of an institution. Certain of the states ha do not have credit rating as the federal institutions have. Mm -hmm. So when we call for the bids for purchasing power, the central institution get better rate than the state institutions mm -hmm. because of credit rating. Sure. And also for the payment security, yeah. what they're going to get. And that's why most of the states prefer to buy power through the central mechanism. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and can maybe to back up a second, because I think one of the things that I'm always impressed with is there's a huge number of, uh, of, of policy goals and things coming from the center. And you talked about sort of this equal partnership between the center and the states. What do you think is the most powerful incentives and, uh, and sort of ways in which you've so far worked with the states to get them to implement the kinds of policies you want them to? Uh, the two key factors which have been instrumental in success of uh, renewable energy, energy adoption in the country. Uh, one, uh, we have uh, uh, made uh, interstate transmission uh, free. Yeah. 
because uh, we want to uh, pass the benefit of solarization and wind power to all the states of the country mm -hmm. and not restrict it to few. Mm -hmm. So if I'm uh, in the northeast of states, I can still uh, put a project mm -hmm. uh, in, in the west of uh, the country and, uh, and draw benefit out of it. Mm -hmm. So this is the first instrument, IST as being free. And second is the renewable purchase obligation. Mm -hmm. So if we are using X amount of power, certain percentage has to be from the RE power. Mm -hmm. And that has been made obligatory. And that's why I said for India, uh, adoption of uh, renewable power is a matter of commitment and faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's how these two, uh, you know, these two policy decisions uh, uh, have made us go ahead uh, fairly rapidly uh, in RE sector. Mm -hmm. And changing the financial incentives for some of the state's utilities and discoms is also a really important part. I mean, that's a, at least it is an important part here as mm -hmm. utilities try to envision a world where they're not only the sellers of renewable power, but they're also purchasers of renewable power to the extent that you have distributed energy resources in your state. Yes, uh, unless the district uh, utilities or the state utilities become a partner in, uh, in, in the RE growth, mm -hmm. uh, you cannot succeed. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, uh, for uh, faster adoption of uh, rooftop solar, mm -hmm. uh, now we have uh, planned a policy of giving some incentive to uh, the state discounts. Mm -hmm. And uh, because the higher the growth they show in adoption of solar rooftop, uh, the more incentive they get. Sure. And uh, similarly, when we are going to implement this tail end uh, solar farming scheme. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there also we are incentivizing the discoms mm -hmm. to purchase power from the farmers mm -hmm. because they are going to purchase uh, uh, power from the farmers at a higher rate. Uh, then uh, they are going to farm, uh, uh, then they are going to purchase power uh, from the large scale RE projects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they have to be compensated. Mm -hmm. And since they have to be compensated, we are giving some incentives to the discounts. So they are being made partner in, in, in uh, implementing the policies, uh, what we are uh, contemplating uh, through the federal government. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about what you've seen or what you've learned in your efforts to promote things like rooftop solar? I mean, I, I think what you've just mentioned are some, some of the ways in which you've uh, found ways to, for discoms in particular um, to, to find it in their interest and not against their interest to promote things like that. But what other sort of innovations and thinking along the lines of rooftop solar for you guys? Uh, rooftop, rooftop solar, if you, uh, rightly you said that, you know, because there has been, uh, we have been facing a little bit of uh, uh, opposition from discoms in adoption of solar power because uh, in India, uh, the residential sector uh, power supply is highly subsidized. Yeah. And they are subsidized at the cost of uh, commercial and industrial customers. Mm -hmm. So uh, if uh, a residential sector, if, if for the residential sector we are supplying power at three rupees, uh, for commercial and industrial uh, uh, people is being supplied at eight or nine or 10 rupees. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they're cross subsidizing. Mm -hmm. And as the rooftop uh, solar is being, has started making commercial sense, uh, more commercial and industrial sectors have started uh, going for uh, solar power. Mm -hmm. And discoms do not want them to go. Because if they let them go, then how are they going to subsidize uh, the residential sector? Right. So there is a, there's a huge opposition from that sector. Mm -hmm. 
So what we are trying to do is we, and, and biggest uh, subsidy goes to the farm sector mm -hmm. uh, for, for power supply for the farm sector. So what we have started doing is first we wanted to make, we want to make farm sector independent of the discoms. Mm -hmm. We want farm sector to have their own captive power. And that's precisely what we have introduced. Uh, we, we have, our, our cabinet has approved, our government has approved uh, a scheme uh, uh, last week uh, through which we'll be supplying 2.75 million uh, pumps, mm -hmm. uh, out of which uh, uh, 1 million would be grid connected and uh, uh, 1.75 million would be uh, off-grid mm -hmm. uh, connected. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, these, this, these pumps would enable farm sector or the farmers to have captive power. So they can use power by producing their own power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, wherever the grid connector is there, they can sell uh, the additional power to the grid. Mm -hmm. And when a farmer is selling additional power to the grid, he is conserving water. Mm -hmm. And uh, once you have the captive power uh, for the farm sector, then the discoms need not give subsidy to the farms, farmers. Mm -hmm. And if they need not give uh, subsidy to the farmers, they do not charge uh, commercial and the industrial customer at a higher rate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a win-win situation. Mm -hmm. So that's how we're concentrating on de-dieselization and uh, supporting uh, farm sector for, their, uh, for producing power for their captive use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we also want to strengthen the income of the farmers because this has always been a concern. People have barren land, uncultivable land, where they cannot do anything. But once they can produce solar, once they can do solar farming or RE farming, they can put their uh, windmill also there. And when they can do RE farming in uh, uncultivable land, uh, they not only earn money from there, but they can also help uh, in uh, strengthening the grid by tail end production mm. and also uh, supporting the local supply of power. Mm, that's interesting. So you focused on transmission lines before, which I can't begin to tell you the problems we have with siding transmission lines in the United States, so mm. we need some corridors like the ones you're making. Um, but one of, the, one of the other pieces of enabling a more renewable energy integrated grid is, is sort of local transmission infrastructure as well. Sure. And, and part of the UDE reform scheme was to reduce the technical and commercial losses. Can you talk a little bit about progress that's been made on that front? Because I do think it's important about trying to figure out whether we're going to be able to have the proper sort of, um, uh, sort of more localized uh, grid networks that can sort of speak to each other in more sophisticated ways as we go forward? Uh, uh, under the Government of India's uh, Sobhagya scheme, uh, uh, by the end of uh, next month, uh, each and every household of India would be connected by electric power, would get electric power. Uh, it could be grid connected, it could be off grid. And when I talk about off-grid, I'm talking about the mini-grids and micro-grids and uh, standalone, uh, uh, you know, uh, power systems mm -hmm. uh, where you just give uh, to individual household uh, solar panels and where they can have few bulbs and fan and a television uh, run from the solar power mm -hmm. with uh, support of storage, the required storage. Mm -hmm. So every household is going to be going to have is going to be electrified. Uh, by the end of the next month. In fact, we are not going to wait even the end of the month, next month we are going to achieve this target much before that. Oh, great. Do you want to announce it here? No. <laughs> 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 um, so uh, one of the other questions that I had, uh, oh, just went out of my mind. Um, 
uh, was something that I, I have been reading about it a little more in the sort of energy wonk news, but the but the, the this basic idea that that India is starting to think about wholesale power market reform, um, the Central Electric uh, CERC uh, Regulatory uh, Commission thinking about the way in which uh, uh, electric power is sold sort of across the country, away from sort of the more constrained PPA price discovery mechanism, more of a market-oriented mechanism. Is that something uh, that, that, that you think about very much, or what your expectations would be for the ability uh, of that kind of like wholesale power market structure to enable um, discoms, which traditionally sort of, you know, uh, uh, utilize the resources that they have based on a power purchase arrangement long-term contract and, and be a little bit more flexible in terms of buying from a least cost resource that's available more uh, in a more timely fashion? Uh, what uh, we are contemplating is that uh, uh, every discom uh, should be able to supply uh, 24 by 7 uh, power to mm -hmm. the consumers. Mm -hmm. And uh, they should uh, make sufficient arrangements of uh, of purchasing uh, that kind of that quantum of power, mm -hmm. and uh, and and if uh, they are unable to supply uh, 24 by 7, uh, then there should be penal action against uh, against the supplier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this is one. Number two, uh, it would be uh, depending. It it is up to the individual discoms to buy power from where they like, because we cannot dictate that uh, you have to buy power from X place or Y place. Mm -hmm. And even today, when we are doing uh, a renewable energy purchase uh, through the federal uh, mechanism, which is the Solar Energy Corporation of India or National Thermal Power Corporation, uh, we get demand from the states. I do not purchase power unless there is a demand from the states. Sure, yeah. So states demand raise a demand, mm -hmm. they say, okay, I want uh, 2,000 megawatt of wind power. Mm -hmm. And then I procure that power on behalf of the state mm -hmm. and supply it to the state. Mm -hmm. And the federal government uh, uh, institution, they keep uh, seven paisa a margin uh, to ensure that the payment, uh, towards the payment security mechanism. Mm -hmm. Because state, uh, the federal government institutions have to pay, uh, to the uh, pay money to the developer in time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they have to have some money kept for them. Mm -hmm. So this is how it is. So we do a power purchase agreement, and we also at the same time do power supply agreement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the discounts will be free to buy power from anywhere they like. Um, before I open it up for questions, and, and and the last thing I said, yeah. sorry, uh, the states, uh, it's not uh, the states can gen can can generate power on their own. Yeah. And uh, suppose the state government of Gujarat is state. Let let me give an example of state government of Gujarat or state government of Rajasthan, uh, which are both uh, rich in uh, uh, solar power and wind power. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if they want to want want to uh, develop their resources. Uh, for supplying power for their own state use, mm -hmm. or to supply that power for any other state, they're free to do so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They can do it on their own. Sure, yeah. And in case they want to do it through the federal mechanism, they can adopt that also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And lastly, uh, I would like to inform you that initially we used to do uh, the solar power or the wind power or RE power, which used to be costlier. We used to do bundling of RE power with thermal power. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But now we have started bundling 
uh, you know, thermal power mm -hmm. with RE power because RE power has become cheaper. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we are using our thermal assets to support RE. It's, it's a very changed world, isn't it? Very changed world. It, it is. is. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I, I think Rick won't invite me back again if I don't ask this question, so before we go to the audience for their questions, which you should be thinking about, uh, is uh, what are the ways in which you, uh, you've, one, interacted with U.S. states and entities that have been helpful to you in what you're trying to do, and are there areas where we can help to strengthen cooperation, uh, either in you know, sort of learning from the experiences that you've had or, uh, or tapping into some of the talents and experiences here as well? Oh, we have been uh, running a very successful uh, U.S.-India uh, strategic energy program. Mm -hmm. And in fact, our uh, collaborative efforts uh, have been on since the year 2005. And uh, last year, uh, we developed into a strategic energy program 2017, under which we are, uh, have various uh, uh, pillars uh, of energy, RE power being one, then uh, coal being another one, and the oil sector being another one. Mm -hmm. So we got different pillars uh, collaboration going on, and uh, we had a meeting of RE pillar this morning. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would like to, uh, and in fact, uh, the collaboration between US and India have uh, borne very successful, and has resulted in very successful outcomes. And uh, we would like to collaborate with, uh, with, the, with the US authorities, with the US institutions, uh, for enhancing research and development. Uh, for development of the next generation solar cells, mm -hmm. uh, for uh, generation for development of solar cells with higher efficiency, mm -hmm. uh, we would like to collaborate with them in the area of storage, mm -hmm. uh, in the area of uh, battery manufacturing, mm -hmm. may it be lithium ion or sodium sulfur, or uh, may it be uh, uh, research on inverters or the string inverters, mm -hmm. and uh, we have been also uh, exchanging our best practices. Uh, may that be in the area of uh, uh, rooftop or uh, payment security mechanism or uh, or uh, integration of grid, uh, the, the smart grid per se. And uh, in fact, uh, there's a huge vast spectrum on which the collaborative actions are taking place. And in fact, uh, is helping uh, both the nations mm -hmm. and uh, not the least uh, with the growth of RE sector in India. Mm -hmm. And uh, India being a huge market uh, for renewable energy. Uh, a lot of American companies uh, have come and set up uh, their, uh, uh, their working there, may it be manufacturers or may they be developers, or, and a whole lot of uh, 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 funds, the US funds, mm -hmm. uh, have supported uh, the growth of uh, renewable energy in India. So, uh, and uh, what we have said is that uh, India is making, India is a huge market. Uh, we want to develop a huge base of manufacturing. Mm -hmm. uh, may it be solar cells, may it be solar modules, may it be wind equipment, uh, may it be any other equipment uh, for the waste of energy or biomass uh, or the small hydro and, uh, and, and we would like uh, US companies to come and uh, start their operations and be partner in Make in India. And not only Make in India to meet the demands of uh, Indian market, but mm -hmm. also to export uh, to Southeast Asia, Asian nations, and Africa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, the, and Indian, India's geographical uh, location advantage mm -hmm. uh, can be used uh, for uh, supplying across the world. Yeah. 
Well, if uh, one thing I've learned in spades since starting to work with Rick and, and his team on uh, relationships between India and the United States on, on energy is just the sheer am amount of appetite from U.S. universities, uh, U.S. innovators, U.S. industry, U.S. governments at all levels in doing more of that kind mm. of collaboration. So I think it's a very fruitful Absolutely. area to go. Okay. I'm going to stop monopolizing his time and we'll take a first question. We have three ground rules. Just wait for a mic. State your name and affiliation and question in the form of a question, please. Hi. Thank you, madam. Uh, thank you. I'm Raghubir Goyal. I'm a journalist in the White House for India, Globe, and Asia today. My question is three-part question. First of all, I just came back from India on a, from a week-long trip, very short. India have changed in many ways, including pollution and energy, as far as Delhi is concerned. Other states I couldn't visit this time. My question is three-part. One, during this Visit, Mr. Secretary, if you have signed any agreement with the U.S. government or U.S. Uh, agents, uh, companies. Second, how much hurdle you have with the states or politics where the ruling party is not there to achieve your goals as far as energy reaching to the people there. And finally, how much energy are we um, importing today with all the engineers and scientists we produced in India, why we are not self-sufficient other than oil or uh, import. Thank you. All right. Uh, let me uh, answer you the last question first. Uh, if you're talking about the petroleum products, uh, energy means not the electricity. And as far as the electricity is concerned, we are self-sufficient. We are not importing uh, electricity. So we have, we have our electric uh, generation and control, we are, uh, we totally uh, cater to the, the country's demand. And uh, as far as uh, petroleum products are concerned, uh, obviously we import uh, petroleum products for uh, the use in uh, the transportation sector and uh, otherwise. But as the electric vehicles will kick in, and as the renewable energy generation would enhance and expand, our dependence on the petroleum products import would come down. Number two, uh, you said that uh, what kind of opposition we find from the states. There is no opposition uh, from the state. It is just that uh, they have their own uh, assets uh, which they have created over past, the thermal assets. So what we have to do is we have to start balancing uh, the use of those assets with the renewable power. Because we cannot say that we cannot shut down all our thermal assets uh, overnight. So they have to be gradual. So what we are trying to do is uh, we are trying to increase uh, the use of our power and uh, we are trying to reduce the uh, use of uh, thermal power. And today, the thermal power plants uh, can be, uh, we can reduce uh, their efficiency by 50, uh, around 50%. And then we can use, so, so we can uh, bring the uh, efficiency down and then we can ramp up and ramp down uh, the use of uh, thermal power plants and then, inter then, uh, then uh, integrate RE energy to that. The last thing you said that uh, any agreement, this is, uh, 
we had I had a very successful meeting uh, with uh, Under Secretary uh, State, uh, Mr. Mark Menzies, and uh, we have uh, identified uh, new areas for collaboration uh, in research and development sector. Uh, they are uh, we are going to primarily work uh, in the area of storage because storage is going to be key. Uh, for both success of electric vehicles and, uh, and renewable energy per se. You know that renewable energy is intermittent, it's not firm, and if we to firm up this power, we need storage, or we need backup power in, 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 in form of hydro or a gas or this. So we are going to work on storage, we are going to work on uh, ancillaries like inverters, we are going to work on uh, development of solar cells, uh, next generation solar cells, uh, and uh, we are uh, we are also going to expand uh, the collaboration between uh, the U.S. companies and the Indian companies uh, to make uh, make in India uh, success, and not only for the Indian market but also for export uh, to the South Asian region and Africa. That's great. Okay. Additional questions? Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Dhruv. I'm a student at Georgetown University. Uh, my question is, in the context of the 2015 denationalization of the coal industry and the auctioning off of coal fields in India, what role do you think that the private sector could potentially play in the renewable energy sector in India in the, the coming future? Uh, sorry, I could catch your question. So um, I'm saying in the context of the denationalization of coal of coal industries in India, what similar role do you think the re, the private sector could play in renewable in the renewable energy industry in India? Today, uh, renewable energy sector is majorly driven by the private sector investment, and we have been able to establish uh, 76 gigawatt of RE capacity, uh, mostly through uh, private investment. And uh, as we go to the target of 175 gigawatt, not only generation, but now we are going generation plus transmission. Generation plus transmission plus storage plus uh, for round the clock power. So this whole thing is going to be driven by the private sector. So we are now facilitating investment of foreign funds, maybe the pension funds or other government funds uh, in the Indian sector. And today, almost all global funds are, have invested in India, in India's RE sector. Mm -hmm. So it will be driven by the private sector, one. Number two, uh, the coal, for quite some time, uh, is going to play a critical role in success of RE sector. Because somebody has to give the, give the base power. And that base power has to come from the thermal. You cannot write off your thermal facilities uh, all of a sudden. You have to gradually uh, reduce dependence on your thermal assets. So they are going to be in use. They will keep on, uh, uh, we will keep on using them for quite some time till storage uh, becomes affordable mm -hmm. and storage started making sense. So thermal will be critical, thermal will be used and it will be gradually tapered off. Mm 
Hi, I'm Srikant. I'm from Energetics, a federal contractor. Uh, you spoke about uh, de -diesel dieselization of the farm sector. But when you look at the residential and the commercial sector, the pollution generated by the standby diesel generators is quite significant. So what measures the government is taking to de-dieselize the standby generators in rest of the country? I believe it, they have been banned in Delhi, but in other tier one and tier two cities. And second part of the question is, uh, it'd be great if you can speak about, you spoke about the wind sector, but you know, if you can uh, talk about what specific impetus India is giving to offshore wind. All right. Uh, if I have uh, heard you right, you first thing, first question you asked me about uh, de-dieselization of the farm sector, right? Of the, uh, the, yeah. uh, the, the farm sector, yeah. right. Uh, diesel is a major pollutant. And uh, it also uh, costs farmer uh, a huge sum when you compare to Aripa. We have already established or given or provided 200,000 solar pumps to the farmers in the country. Seeing the benefit of the solar pumps, whether offshore or grid connected, if we talk, oh sorry, off-grid, uh, off I'm not offshore, off-grid. If you talk about off-grid solar pumps, farmer gets kept apart. He doesn't use diesel. The power of uh, the cost of power is far less. He doesn't have to bring diesel over and over again. We save on uh, on foreign exchange for the import import of uh, uh, import of petroleum products, and the farmer can use captive power not only for irrigation but also for other uses in the farm sector. So we are going to provide, in addition to 200,000, what we have done, 1.75 million pumps over the next four years to the farmers in off-grid manner. 30% of the cost would come as subsidy from the central government. 30% would come from the state government as subsidy. 30% would come as loan. And 10% of the cost would have to be with farmer. When you talk about grid-connected solar pump, same uh, formulation continues for support. 30% subsidy from central, 30% subsidy from the state government, 30% loan, 10% farmer's contribution. But here, the advantage is that he can export excess power to the grid and earn an additional income. And when he's earning additional income uh, by export of surplus power, he would be conserving water. And then, by conserving water, uh, he's also using their, his captive power, and we would be stopping the other subsidies per se. So as I said earlier, it's a win-win situation for everyone. We are doing the de-dieselization of, uh, uh, of the farm sector, one. We are going to uh, enable a farmer to have a captive power for his own use whenever he wants during the, power, during the daytime. Today what happens in India, sometimes the current comes in the evening. When the power comes in the evening, the farmer has to go in the night and, and do irrigation for his farm.
but here the, the farmer won't have to get up in the night and uh, and and go go for uh, you know so for for irrigating his farmland, so uh, he can do it during the daytime. And then these are all uh, tail end applications, which will strengthen the grid. So this is one. Number two, off grid, uh, offshore. Uh, we would be requiring around 850 gigawatt of power uh, by 2030, considering a growth rate of 6.5 percent per annum. And today, India uses around one-third of global average in electricity consumption. Just imagine when every household, which you are going to do, is going to be electrified. Just imagine when electric vehicles will move in and kick in in India. The demand is going to surge. And if this demand is going to surge, and if we double our consumption level, then we would require around 1,700 gigawatt of the thing gigawatt of power. And 1,700 uh, gigawatt of power would not come from the traditional renewable sources, that is the wind energy and the solar energy or hybrid. We have to go to the non-conventional renewable energy sources, like offshore wind. And we have identified uh, a potential of 17, 70 gigawatt of the coast of Gujarat and of the coast of Tamil Nadu. And uh, we are uh, trying to experiment if we're going to harness these new resources right from the beginning. And we are going to make our investment in the first offshore farm uh, this year. And we have brought in the expression of interest for establishing first project of one gigawatt of the cost of Gujarat. And the transmission will take place uh, to Gujarat. And Gujarat government has already agreed to buy the complete power, the total power generated from this project. Hi, I'm Laurie Needy from the Energy and um, Information Administration of DOE. And, um, you know, we, we're working on um, a new electricity model for the International Energy Outlook. And um, so we try to forecast, you know, what the energy is going to be, <laughs> energy market's going to be for the future around the world. And I have a couple of questions. You have some, um, you know, really lofty goals for renewable energy over the next couple of years and you know for solar you have this thing where yes the prices of solar panels have gone down but then you instituted tariffs so that you could get your um, I guess um, get your local um, markets making their own um, their own solar panels so I'm wondering and then in order, to, in order to get the goal, you really have to put out a lot of tenders and you have to have a lot of bidders. And you also want the tariffs or the rates to be low at, at a certain rate. So there's all this going on. And I'm just wondering, what's more important of all those goals? Is it more important to get the local market of um, making solar panels underway? you know, at the, at the risk of slowing down those goals? Is it more important to get to the goals? I'm just wondering, what are the priorities? All right. All of the above. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, I admit today, uh, most of our solar cells and modules uh, are being imported. For us, 
is very important to have make in India. And we would like to have uh, solar cells and modules manufactured in India, not only for meeting our own demand, but also uh, meeting demands of other countries. And this can be done when you have to have the economy of scale, when you, when you have uh, the demand aggregation. So we are, uh, we are enhancing the demand, we are doing the demand aggregation, and we are going to, we are following, we are, we are bringing the new policies uh, for uh, facilitating manufacturing in India. In fact, uh, we have uh, just bring out a tender that we would, the manufacturing link tender of three, of three gigawatt. We give you three gigawatt of assured market provided you set up manufacturing of 1.5 gigawatt of solar cells and modules in the country. So these are manufacturing link tender, one. Number two, we have set our own standards that anybody who's going to supply uh, solar cells and modules for Indian projects, they have to meet that standards. And if they don't meet those standards, uh, then they will not be allowed to supply those for the project. So we are working on our own uh, policies, uh, working through our own uh, tariff, non-tariff uh, instruments. And, uh, but yes, we are committed uh, for manufacturing in India, and we would like to meet our own demand, and we won't like to be dependent on somebody else uh, for my own energy security. So even if that slows down the development of solar, you'd rather focus, in other words, even if people, even if, um, people can't finance these projects at, at a low enough tariff while they're making their own sol solar panels, so that might lower the amount of, of solar energy that gets produced or that gets built. So it's more important to go slow then and make sure that you learn how to produce your own panels. That, that's kind of what I'm getting at. So I think she, the, the question is, and we grapple with this here too, which is how do, you, how do you create a domestic solar manufacturing industry that's cost competitive with what you would have imported? The presumption is that at some point when you initially put a tariff, you know, raise a tariff on what you're importing is that until you come up to scale, can produce at that cost, then you're gonna have a period of slowdown just because of that that differential. Do you accept that premise, or do you think you won't see a slowdown as a result of the, the manufacturing incentive? Is it sequenced in such a way that you don't think you'll experience that, or are you willing to accept the slowdown by virtue of creating that sector? Uh, no, uh, I, I would agree with you. We uh, won't be slowing down our, uh, our process of deployment of, uh, of solar energy. Mm -hmm. uh, one, uh, we would ensure uh, through the standards that only uh, those solar cells and modules are put in Indian projects which meet the standards and uh, which do not degrade faster than uh, what it should be. And in fact, there are uh, there were a couple of complaints which have been received in in the country that uh, people are using substandard cells and modules and uh, they are going to degrade much faster than uh, their life of 25 years. So that we are taking care uh, through the standards what we have brought, uh, which we have brought in, one. Number two, we are all now in enhancing the scale uh, to ensure that the cost of production in India uh, is, at, is, is at par with the global uh, production rate. Number three, 
the solar cell technology is fast evolving. And people try to recover the cost of technology within three to four years. And now the new generation, solar cells are coming. So we can, we as a country can catch on the technology curve and be globally competitive. So our policy is to be globally competitive, catch on the technology curve, and not only cater to the Indian demand, but also cater to the global demand. And till that date, I'm committed to, product, to protect my domestic industry. In fact, we have brought in the latest scheme of 12,000 megawatt. Uh, it's called the Government Producer Scheme. The energy, the, the sorry, RE power, the solar uh, power would be produced by the government entities and for the government use. So if you produce a product through the government entity for the government use, is WTO compliant. So I'm going to give a protected market to my institutions and I would secure that whatever is being produced by the domestic manufacturers is utilized here in my own country. And for that, I'm willing to give them some incentive, uh, which we have already provided uh, up to 70 lakh per megawatt uh, for 12,000 megawatt uh, uh, under the scheme. So this uh, uh, government producer scheme, which uh, we have, uh, the government has approved recently, uh, would protect the Indian market. So, what I'm trying to say is that, yes, we are, at one hand, we are trying to protect uh, the domestic manufacturers who are existing now in the market. Number two, we are going to put the standards to ensure that only quality goods come in. We are going to have the non-tariff barriers to ensure that Make in India succeeds. We are going to have the right kind of partnerships with the companies which are willing to come and start manufacturing in India. And at the same time, while I am enhancing my manufacturing base, I will keep on uh, importing from, uh, from, the, from, from the sources at the rate at which to, at the rate uh, considering which I can get affordable power, affordable power for Metascoms. Thank you. My name is Baburam, and I really, in short time, you have given the whole of India in very 15 minutes time, RE sector and energy sector. So it is very impressive, and congratulations. My question is a little bit about geographical spread of the renewable energy development in India. In particular, I'm interested, interested to know about the developments in the northeast of India vis-a-vis -vis the other plains, other other states in the India. And uh, suppose if they are trailing behind other states, then what policies, what special instruments and packages you have in mind to make them come forward and compete with other states in India? Thank you very much. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, all states 
all countries, all geographical locations do not have uh, similar insulation or wind power. It depends and it varies from area to area. Like in India, we have got seven, eight states in which we have got uh, viable wind power to harness wind energy. I'm talking about the large wind power, not the small wind, and uh, which, can be, uh, which can be harnessed uh, at a commercial viable rate or economical viable rate. Similarly, the solar insulation also varies from state to state. In Rajasthan, Gujarat, Telangana, uh, uh, in, in Andhra Pradesh, uh, in Tamil Nadu, you know, they are high in, in Jammu and Kashmir, in Madhya Pradesh, they are higher insulation area. But if you see northeast, uh, it rains quite a bit in northeast. And insulation is not very high, one. Number two, they do not have the flat land. Because if you have to put solar projects, your solar panels have to face uh, the uh, south or southwest. So you have the limitations of geography out there. But nevertheless, they have small hydro. So what we are trying to do for the Northeast, we are trying to uh, harness small hydro and provide uh, RE power through small hydro, one. Number two, to meet their demand of electricity power. They can buy renewable power projects through renew renewable energy power through the projects established in other states, for which we have interstate transmission free. So if I'm in Mizoram, and if I got a requirement of 500 megawatt, I will tell Solar Energy Corporation of India that I require 500 megawatt. Please give me the best rate. Solar Energy Corporation of India brings out a bed, and he says 500 megawatt for Mizoram. So somebody in Rajasthan says, okay, I'll develop this project of 500 megawatt. I'll give you a rate of 2.5 or 2.44. And that Mizoram government gets the solar energy from the resource which is in Rajasthan at 2.44. So what we are trying to do is, we are trying to use national resources for the national good. And the benefits, we want to percolate to each state and every individual of the country. Um, to pick up on that point, so where do you see a role for uh, many renewable grids at all in the rural area, rural areas? and? Um, are they being encouraged or not encouraged? I mean, and if so, who is doing them? Is it being done at the district level? Is it being done at the state, uh, deciding that a certain area, um, a mini-grid makes sense? Is it being done at the panchayat level? Um, I just want to know what the policy is on and how they fit into the picture. Mini-grids and micro-grids fit into the policy structure? Who's doing them? Who's in charge of deciding where they go? All right. Uh, I know, uh, as I said, that uh, the government, uh, under the Swabhagya scheme, uh, is, has committed itself to uh, electrify each and every household. 
and uh, under that scheme we have uh, established mini grids and micro grids in various uh, regions of the country. So it's not only the government, but it's also the private sector. In many places, private sector has gone and set up their uh, mini grids and micro grids, and uh, they find one prime user. Uh, around a cluster of houses, and then they uh, use other, uh, you know, uh, sub-users uh, in the village or in the locality, and they uh, provide power there. So we are, uh, so there are many mini-grids, mini micro-grids, and independent uh, household uh, RE solutions which have been provided in India. Uh, in fact, the standalone uh, solar systems are very popular. Uh, we give uh, solar panels. It is backed by uh, a sm a small storage, and then uh, the, the, in the in the household they light up four lamps, one uh, fan, and one television, and one refrigerator. So they're standalone solutions also. So there's mini grids, micro grids, standalone solutions. So everything is working. And I said uh, the recently what you started doing is we have uh, started uh, giving. Uh, uh, the clean uh, clean cooking uh, solutions also. In fact, for the first time, we have provided uh, clean cooking systems to 200 families uh, in two villages, one in uh, Madhya Pradesh and another in Andaman and Nicobar Island. So what we've given is we have given uh, solar panels of, uh, of 800 uh, watt and plus an induction stove. So and uh, then we're given uh, some storage with the, with that. So so now now uh, the household don't won't have to depend uh, on collecting the firewood, and they get a solution for next 25 years for clean cooking, and they don't have to go to agency to get to fetch gas. So it's a standalone system, and which can be very helpful in uh, hilly areas and uh, in the remote areas in the islands, and. Uh, and uh, we are just hoping that uh, solar uh, storage uh, costs would come down drastically in the years to come uh, so that uh, people would have their own standalone solutions and they will uh, and we are, we may move uh, towards a gridless uh, gridless uh, globe where i will have solar uh, panel on the top uh, i'll store energy for the night and uh, and meet my household uh, needs uh, through the captive power. It's a great vision. I think I'm a grid girl, though. I like, I like the grid. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, you know, something you just said was very interesting, though. You said that these solar home systems are very popular. I mean, adoption of rooftop solar, solar home systems, microgrid experiences, there takes a good amount of public confidence that needs to be yes. built in those systems. Do you think you've made headway? I mean, do you do you really oh, I, believe that? You know, in fact, uh, you'll be surprised that I was, uh, after taking charge as uh, Secretary Renewable Energy, I moved uh, to a small uh, uh, village uh, in Uttar Pradesh. And uh, to my surprise, uh, solar panels uh, were being sold at hardware shops. So what they do is they buy uh, solar panels and uh, they have a small battery and uh, they charge that battery and meet their uh, electricity demand during the night. So innovative solutions are coming up. People are charging their uh, mobile through solar panels. And uh, so, so 
basically solar panels are providing you electricity. And then you can do the uh, anything what you're doing from the regular electricity you can do through the uh, solar panels. So the only thing is that yes, uh, solar and RE uh, being distributed in nature, uh, it can provide uh, electric uh, electricity independence uh, in the remote areas. And uh, as uh, somebody was saying, that it can, uh, it can remove energy poverty uh, from the globe, uh, giving the independent solutions. Great. Yes, sir. Arun Sharma from the IFC. So, uh, you know, one of the questions, uh, this is not really an IFC question. Uh, you know, we are one of the biggest investors in RE in India, as you know, and uh, also, you may not know, but we also did the first private sector green bank, Tata Clean Tech, which was uh, my project five years ago. And uh, uh, the only mistake I made was I didn't put enough equity in. But I think after your talk, we're going to at least put 10 times more equity in, into, into that, given the business we have. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the question I had was on uh, the, you know, we've also done a solar uh, cooking store project with Seva earlier, many years ago. And it was not so successful because of the quality of the cooking stove. So one of the suggestions I have is that it is of, you know, because the users are not very sophisticated, the people from the village. Uh, so the ability to maintain quality on all these products, whether it's the panels, the inverters that go with the panels, because we also financed a, a solar pump program for Seva in the Rand of Kutch now, which is very, very successful. Purely private sector funded, we didn't take one penny from the government, and is going extremely well. Uh, it's a blended finance program that we structured. It was already rolled out to a thousand, and now we have underwritten the entire community. But they're running around trying to find borrowers from us. But uh, so these are all, uh, you know, very promising initiatives. But the challenge is the operational one. Money is not an issue. Uh, there are lots of people willing to finance these things, but. Maintaining quality and after-sale service and the ability of these poor people to be able to use them consistently in harsh environments is, is, is a real challenge that we'll all face. And that's something that you know, we need to find a way to have a permanent solution around that. And that's one of the things that we've set up the Green Bank that we did, is to make it a knowledge bank as well as a financing bank. So that's, that's, that's going to be our focus. And last quick comment was that the challenge we have been uh, given by a lot of our stakeholders is when we look at uh, putting solar pumps on a very wide scale and you know we kind of take some credit in the success of the solar st pump story with with our project and uh, its success that now you know the government is scaling it up to 2.75 million and we've just financed only you know just a few thousand is that it has potentially an impact on the water table the, the, there is an argument that is being made that says that because diesel is costly, farmers use, limit the use of the pump to the amount of water they actually need. And because solar is going to be literally free, and so there may be less responsible use of water when it comes to the individual farmer. And given the challenge we have, as we all know, with the water table in India, especially in the northern states, that's an issue, I think, that somehow needs to come into the policy calculation. That's just I want to limit my comments to that. All right. Uh, okay, let me take your first question. 
Uh, first question is regarding the quality and maintenance. And uh, I quite agree with you that uh, earlier the system integrators uh, were supplying uh, poor quality of pumps, poor quality of solar panels, and uh, fairly often taking the farmers for right and they not getting the quality for money. But in our recent tenders, what we have done is uh, that we have made it mandatory uh, for the supplier to give a guarantee, uh, whether the solar lighting systems or the pumps, to give the maintenance for five years. So he would be uh, mandated to give maintenance of the, of the solar pumps for five years, one. Number two, uh, we have also mandated that anybody who's supplying power, he has to have a service station uh, in the district where he's going to supply the solar pumps or the solar lights. Uh, suppose for, we got A, B, and C vendors. So A would be given one area where he would be having his uh, service uh, stations and also uh, in, in case of any, any, any uh, thing going wrong. And then we have got a, a maintenance contract for five years. And in case we find that uh, the quality uh, has been totally substandard and we are getting uh, too frequent uh, uh, complaints, then we can blacklist them. And the third thing what we have done is we have mandated uh, for the suppliers to have a helpline because the farmer cannot go and locate the service stations. So we have mandated now that anybody who supplies pumps or who uh, supplies uh, solar uh, lights uh, must have a helpline uh, helping, uh, helping the beneficiary. So this is your uh, first question. Uh, second is uh, you're talking about uh, that if the solar pump is given, uh, then uh, the farmer would be drawing water more often and he won't be conserving water, right? That's the question you're getting. That's the question you're getting. So as the grid uh, expansion would take place, the farmer would be interested in selling and exporting part of the grid rather than over drawing power as water. And that will result in conservation of water. Even today, when electricity is free or highly subsidized, the farmer can uh, you know, draw more uh, water and misuse water. So nobody is going to stop him. But then the, the advantages of standalone solar uh, irrigation system or the grid-connected uh, grid irrigation system is going to be much more. And then awareness is coming in. People are going into, uh, 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 in, into, into, um, in, into drip irrigations. Not everybody is interested in uh, flooding uh, his, his, his field with water. So with that kind of awareness. So this is where all of us become relevant. Let's create awareness. Let's uh, teach the farmer that he should not overdraw water. Let him allow, use his captive power, not only for irrigation, but also for doing other household use, uh, for cutting uh, uh, the fodder, for example, uh, for uh, running uh, uh, the floor well. And uh, today there are different kind of controllers which are available, and uh, these controllers can be used along with uh, the solar panels and solar inverters 
and uh, the, the, the solar panels which you are going to give to the farmer will be not only for irrigation, but a composite system for the household use per se. Right? So that electric power he can draw uh, for lighting his house, for uh, using uh, floor mill, whatever. Yes. Multi-use or conservation Multi -use. will be very helpful. True. Yeah. Yes, good point. Okay, any other questions? Yes, ma'am. I have one more. I'm just curious. Just wait for the mic. Oh. I'm, j I'm just curious. So in the, in the um, schemes where you work with the state governments, um, does, if, if any state has a demand for, you know, a new renewable generator, do you help them, or what's the, what's the percentage of you know states that get, or projects that you support, that the federal government supports? Uh, it depends on the state to state, and uh, if uh, a particular state wants to buy uh, renewable energy uh, power uh, on their own, uh, power from uh, renewable energy sources, they can do so. And uh, if they want to buy through the federal government institution, they could do so. Uh, but most of the states, because of the better credit ratings of the federal government institutions, uh, do give their demand uh, to the federal government. And uh, then we aggregate the demand. Uh, and uh, when we aggregate demand, we get a better prices. So there are three states, suppose Rajasthan and Gujarat and uh, Orissa. Uh, say they, uh, so if they individually go for tenders, they may go for 500 megawatt each. But if uh, I'm taking uh, the demand, then I would be going for tender for 1,500. So whenever you aggregate demand and uh, put it for bid, the rates, what you get for a new economy of scale is better. So that's, it's, that's why people, you know, the states do go through the financial, oh, sorry, uh, through the institutions of the federal government. Okay, I'm gonna take the prerogative as the person sitting up here with a microphone and ask the last question, which I get a lot. Uh, and so, because uh, a lot of our program deals with oil and gas markets, and, and there's a lot of interest in what is driving electric vehicle policy in India. Is it um, commercial competitiveness? Do you wanna sell a lot of EVs? Do you wanna, you know, sort of create a battery market that you're, or create battery manufacturing capability that you're selling other places? Um, is it for, you know, reduction of petroleum consumption? And if that, so, how quickly do you think you're going to be able to get them. it? Right. <laughs> sort of like that question, right? Check the box of all the reasons. How, how should, I mean, because to be quite candid with you, some of the targets are as outlandish and, and pie in the sky as, as some of the renewable energy targets, and you're making some good progress on those. So people in the in the sort of oil and gas sector are looking at that and going wow that could be really transformative because they expect a huge amount of transportation fuel demand to be coming from india and so how can you just talk a little bit about the ev uh, policies and and what's concrete versus aspirational uh what we plan is by 2022 around uh six to seven million uh, electric vehicles mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, success of electric vehicles would depend on storage and uh, how competitive storage. Today, if you see uh, the major cost uh, on an electric vehicle is because of, uh, because of the, because of the battery. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, then uh, but we have uh, started producing electric vehicles uh, there are two companies in india mahindra and uh, uh, tata they are manufacturing cars and uh, we are not only uh, we are going to have uh, electric scooters, electric uh, auto rickshaws, and various kind of transportation. In fact, uh, uh, you'll be surprised that we started uh, running a uh, few boats in Varanasi mm -hmm. uh, on electric power. So what we did was uh, we charged batteries. We and uh, and then the boatman comes and uh, he hires that battery, uh, runs his boat, comes back again. And uh, so, what uh, kind of boat? Like a fishing boat, or like? Uh, a no, no, the, the passenger boat. Oh, passenger boat. So okay, earlier, the passenger boat up. was being run on diesel, mm. and uh, it was polluting the area. So we started this pilot project, and uh, and uh, we charge battery from the regular line, and in fact, we charge we can charge battery through the uh, through the solar panels also, mm -hmm. and uh, we give uh, these batteries. Uh, they run boats on uh, batteries, and uh, it is. Uh, uh, much cheaper than uh, using diesel. Mm. Mm. So we are not only concentrating on cars, we are concentrating on two-wheelers and the three-wheelers. And uh, as I said, that yes, storage is going to hold the key. And uh, we are concentrating, therefore, uh, for success of not only electric vehicles, but also for every RE sector, per se, uh, on making India storage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we are going to ensure that storage happens in India, uh, one, uh, by creating the demand. The storage is not going to happen unless you create huge demand for this. Again, upscaling the thing. So now we have started coming out with the tenders uh, for buying solar energy. So not solar energy, but renewable energy, along with storage. So we are saying, OK, you, I, I have, uh, I want uh, X unit per day uh, of RE energy uh, during the peak hours. And uh, during the non-peak hours, uh, it would be X plus Y. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I ensure that I get uh, off, uh, uh, that, that, that uh, the, the peak demand is also met uh, through storage. You know, you, you can have solar energy during the daytime. So uh, X units are there. Uh, the developer uh, puts X plus Y. He saves Y and stores, and Y he supplies to me in the evening. So we are creating demand by uh, adding storage to our purchases, mm -hmm. and we are also creating demands for EVs. So uh, we are going to facilitate Make in India storage, one, as I said, through the demand, number two, through our phased manufacturing policy, uh, which would be uh, backed by tariff and non-tariff barriers. So initially, there will be 0% uh, custom duty, but then in the years to come, it will increase to 5%, 15%, 20%. And uh, we'll ensure that uh, that uh, whatever is being in India is of the required standard also. Well, that's great. Listen, you've been extremely generous with your time. Um, we have learned a lot in a very short period of time. We could probably continue doing this for several hours because of so much going on. But I just want to say on behalf of Rick and, and all of us here at CSIS, your friends, it's really wonderful to have you here. Thank you very much for sharing all of your thoughts with us. Thank you, sir. Thank, Thank you. you very much.